This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. There is no shortage of problems that Americans can point to indicating a decline in our national life. But one of the more recent ailments we have faced is in the form of identity politics, this movement in which people split off into various social, racial or sexual subgroups and insist on the purging of transgressors who have trampled upon their interests. Not only that, but we also suffer from additional ailments that make the need for national renewal all the more important, but can we achieve it? Joining me now is Dr. Joshua Mitchell, professor of political theory at Georgetown University, and he is author of the book we'll be discussing called American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Professor Mitchell, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. You do speak of these three ailments, the first being identity politics. And I thought this was interesting. You call it the pride of believing that we ourselves are clean, that transgression is someone else's problem and not our own. And I think that's interesting. Why break down identity politics to this issue of pride? Well, uh, because I think identity politics is actually a very bad religious movement. Uh, the history of America shows that we've had a number of American awakenings. These things have been transformative and, and to the good. Uh, this is a, an awakening as well. The only thing people seem to be caring about these days is how pure they are, how guilty other people are. <laughs> and as you know from the story of Adam and Eve, uh, this is the deepest disposition of, of broken, fallen human beings. Uh, Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames uh, God who gave him Eve, uh, and what I'm suggesting here is that identity politics is really this, uh, this political phenomenon, this religious phenomenon really masquerading as politics, in which what we're trying to do is purge all the impure ones and, and have only the clean ones ascend. And this also extends to even things like climate change, where we're getting rid of dirty fossil fuels in order to have clean green energy. There's a desperate attempt to find cleanliness everywhere. That is so true. But in their minds, what do you think they believe the standard for clean is? Is it just them as they are, or is there some higher standard in this thinking? Well, that's a great question. I think in general, what, what uh, people who, identi- who practice identity politics want to believe is that they're pure, and what they're trying to do is to route out other people's impurity. So they have to show how woke they are by getting behind all of these social justice projects, but they're never willing to look into the depth of their own heart. And uh, I've spoken with a number of people about this, uh, theologians, and they, they, they say the same thing that I say, which is <clears throat> that at night you're going to still go to bed and you're going to feel guilt because guilt is original to the human condition. Uh, But what we're desperately trying to do here, what these people are trying to do, is to put it on somebody else's shoulders. Yeah, 
Exactly. So you've got the innocent and you've got the transgressor, but in their minds, it's always somebody else who is the transgressor, never themselves. But how do they get themselves off the hook? Because I can think of all kinds of circumstances during any given news cycle where you see all kinds of inconsistencies with these these people. They'll, for instance, talk about how somebody's totally racist and they, they, they turn around and express more blatant racism than I've ever seen in a lot of the people that they're saying are the transgressors. Well, uh, it's a never-ending struggle to find cleanliness, but there's also a great deal of, of self-deception. I think that's the heart of it, and you just mentioned this a few minutes ago. It's pride. It's never looking into your own heart. It's always looking at somebody else's problems, looking at the, at the beam, at the splinter in somebody else's eye. Meanwhile, there's a beam in their own eye. Totally true. Yeah, you're right. How do you see identity politics both changing and hurting America right now? Well, um, what I've tried to suggest in the book is that we have really two alternatives going forward. We can go forward with what I call this liberal politics of innocence, where that's the only thing we're concerned about is purging the, the stained ones and elevating the, the innocent ones, the supposedly innocent ones. Or we can have what I call the liberal politics of competence, where we look at each other and we ask, how are we going to build a world together? It doesn't really matter what gender you are, what race you are, etc. We've got a challenge here. And my concern here is that uh, we're entering a, a, a period in history where we're no longer the world power. I mean, after 1989, America was the single reigning power. But now we've got China. And, and I think the Chinese are really laughing at us all the way because here we are concerned about who among us is pure and innocent. And meanwhile, they're building a world of, of technological competence. They're going to outdo us militarily, production-wise, and everything. And unless we get our act together and get back to what I call the liberal politics of competence, we're really going to lose this race. Oh, no doubt about it. You're right about China. It, well, a lot of people, though, look at what has transpired in the last several years with the rise of identity politics and wonder, why has it caught on? It's one thing for it to be discussed in the annals of academia and, and you know, people in, in certain liberal circles, far left circles, really, you know, glom onto it as a good means of getting control over people. But why do you think Americans are susceptible to jumping on board with seemingly little to no thought or analysis? This is a great question. So many of my colleagues on the right say that we're fighting some variant of cultural Marxism. And my argument is that Marxism could never really take hold of America because the central category that Marxism attacks is property. And America is a property-loving community. The the problem with identity politics is that it attacks us where Americans are, in a way, uh, weakest. That's not quite right. It's what we think about most. We're always thinking about guilt. Uh, you know, from the Puritans forward, Americans have been wrestling with the problem of their guilt. And I think this is ultimately a very good thing because it leads us to, to be honest with ourselves and with one another. Uh, so identity politics is going to be able to penetrate. Identity politics from the left is going to be able to penetrate America in a way that Marxism never could. It's far more pernicious because it plays on the deepest sentiments in the American soul, which is the sentiment of guilt. Yeah. So it's completely, it's, it's a, I say it's a religious awakening without God and without forgiveness. So there's all the Christian categories like transgression and innocence, but there's no God, there's no forgiveness, there's no atonement, and there's no repentance. So that's what makes it so incredibly dangerous. Yeah, you're right about that. And yet we're also a country who has historically adhered to e pluribus unum. We're not traditionally a, a country that, at least in a lot of our lifetimes, where we have balkanized. This is something a little bit more recent where everybody's part of a subgroup and everybody has their own political alliances and they're all clawing for power. But 
why have we been susceptible to accepting balkanization and not more stridently going back to some of the original American ideals of we all come together from various backgrounds as one united under these principles that we were founded upon? Well, there's, that's a great question. I think part of it is what the government itself has been doing. So I have a dear friend, Michael Gonzalez, who's been writing for a number of years about the Census Bureau and its attempt to force us to identify with these different invented categories. Hispanic is not a category. It's an invented category, invented for political purposes so that people could awaken to their so-called political self-interest. So one of the things I think we have to fight is the government itself, which is giving us all these categories. So, for example, I'm, I have to check the box white. I don't even check that box anymore. Yeah. My view is we should go back to something like national origin, uh, because there is no uniform white, there is no uniform black, there is no uniform Hispanic. We can check these national origin boxes. That tells us a little bit about something about us. But on the other hand, the most important thing, and you just said this a few minutes ago, is Americans, America itself has been a singular country in that it is able to gather all these different people together. And this is why I call for liberal competence. We have to stop looking at each other in terms of bearers of identity categories and start looking at each other as, as people who we can work with to build a competent world. Yes. Well, the other problem is, and I agree with you, I've stopped checking that box as well, being white myself, but the, the white male is in big trouble. I mean, this is the problem. Not, not all races are created equal anymore. You are guilty because you are white, it would seem, in a lot of people's minds. So this is, this is where we get to the very interesting theological overtone. So if you're Christian, you know that Christ was the divine scapegoat who took upon himself the sins of the world. Yes. And it's only through a divine intervention that we could, we could, uh, we could achieve the, the, the cover of righteousness to be even more technical. But what's happened with identity politics is that it doesn't believe in a divine scapegoat. It believes that one particular mortal group is the scapegoat who will take away the sins of the world. And I don't mean in some glorified sense. It means we need to put all the sins of the world on him. And so the the nation state was invented in 1648 in Westphalia, the Westphalian Treaty. Well, that's that's the problem of the white man. I'll tell you what, hang on. I'm so sorry. We've got to run to a very quick break. We'll pick up the discussion with Professor Joshua Mitchell, author of American Awakening, when we come back on Janet Meffer Today. If you could provide God's Word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible. Bible, but what happens there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, 800 Yes Word, or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855 855- You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Dr. Joshua Mitchell is my guest, professor of political theory at Georgetown and author of American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. And Professor Mitchell, you were making a really, really great point when we were talking about identity politics and how white males are especially hated right now. And you had equated what you've been calling kind of a bad religious movement of identity politics to this idea that as as in Christianity, Jesus is the sacrifice. Now, white males, or maybe more specifically, white heteros, sexual males are going to be the group that is the scapegoat under this new religion. Is that correct? That's correct. And what will happen is that there'll be every effort made to purge the white heterosexual male, to silence them, to have all the younger generation give up on getting jobs and sit back and do video games. But the thing is, identity politics will always need a scapegoat. So once you purge the white heterosexual male, it will have to be somebody else. You have to find some other group to blame for the problems that reside in the world. And so the next group, I believe, will be white women. And then the group after that, and it's already starting to happen, is black heterosexual males. So if you believe in the transgender movement, which is part of identity politics, then you doubt that male and female are are legitimate categories. You doubt that the conventional marriage is something that's worth saving. But it turns out that black America needs these things, just like everybody else. And so, so the left, which started out with the civil rights movement, ends up through this transgender movement uh, attacking black Americans who believe in the family. And I think this is part of the reason, by the way, why we had all these uprisings this past summer. Every four years, the Democratic Party desperately tries to show black America that it has its back, so to speak, that racism is this this systemic problem in America. There's voter suppression. Every four years this happens and black America is forgotten. I think this time what happened was left is pushing towards transgender movement, uh, the black America understands that this is a movement that has nothing to do with the success of black America. And so the Democratic Party is in a bit of a bind. If it wants to keep blacks in its camp and, and transgenders at the same time, it has to whip up this frenzy of racism in America. And of course, after the election, it all dies down. And it has, of course. Yeah, of course. That's a really good observation. Now, you also wind into the discussion some of these other ailments. And you say, for example, the first obstacle in returning to what you call liberal competence is bipolarity, which is another ailment that you get into. Can you explain exactly what you're talking about when you are referencing that particular ailment? 
So what I've tried to do in the second half of the book is use talk about bipolarity and addiction in slightly larger terms than, than is medically understood. So I'm a scholar of Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote the most beautiful book on America ever written called Democracy in America. Yes. And toward the end of the book, he says, there's something about these democratic conditions in which we, we're going to lose our connections to people, become increasingly isolated and alone. And he says, as a consequence of breaking the links between persons and breaking the links between the generations, we will come to feel ourselves to be, quote, greater than kings and less than men. And what he meant by this was when we're completely isolated and alone, we don't feel connected to anybody. We feel like we're the sovereigns of our own world. This is the phenomena of selfie man, where people around the world are taking selfies of themselves, hundreds of them a day, as if the world is a backdrop to them. Hmm. So on the one hand, you feel completely empowered. And on the other hand, because you're delinked and isolated and alone, you feel utterly impotent. And so you oscillate back and forth between feeling yourself to be greater than a king and less than men. So this is a very serious problem. And Tocqueville thought the only way that we could fight this was if we turned our attention to our neighbors, to our churches, to our families, and built the world in community. That's the only way we could solve the problem of this bipolarity. In other words, the problem of bipolarity is not ultimately a medical problem. It's a social association problem. Yes, this is interesting. Now, how do you take that analysis in light of what's happened with these shutdowns? Because there are many Americans who have said, boy, I thought more businesses would fight back at being shut down in places like California. You have a few people rising up. You have some instances where the political tyrants are cracking down on them more than we would think possible in America. But how do you see that playing out right now in places where, again, people are being locked down and told you can't go to church, you can't do this, you can't do that? Great question. This shows up, by the way, especially in students. So you go to a high school graduation and a college graduation, and you'll hear the valedictorian saying, we're going to change the world. Every, the world is our oyster. We're going to do whatever we want. Uh, we're so powerful. And, and, of course, this is one part of this bipolar, bipolar phenomena. The other part is utter submission, utter impotence. And I've been waiting for my students who claim they're going to transform the world to say a single peep against these shutdowns. Yeah. So yes, this, the, the utter impotence that people feel is the flip side of people t- taking selfies. So in, in a way, this social lockdown with Facebook, uh, accompanied by Facebook, is exactly the configuration I'm talking about. People are still posting on their Facebook pages, look at the selfie of me, and on the other hand, they bow to the, the slightest order of anybody in power. This is a deep perversion of human liberty, and we have to somehow overcome this disposition to oscillate back and forth between feeling ourselves to be completely liberated and not bound to anybody, on the other hand, utterly impotent. Oh, I think you're spot on about that. It's like the people who will put up tweets and talk about fight, fight, fight. And I'm thinking you're not fighting, you're tweeting from your smartphone. I mean, it's not the same thing as fighting. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> it frustrates me because wow. you're right. We have lost that sense of ensuring liberty means more than tweeting or posting another selfie yeah. on Facebook. We're completely nuts on that point. That's why I'm so glad you're writing about this. Yeah. Now, what about addiction? There's been a lot out there about opioid addiction and meth labs and people who are obese, these sorts of things. How is this really uh, you know, harming us as a society in, in broader terms than just the people who are involved in this sort of thing? Uh, great question. Really, the third part of the book on addiction is the most provocative of all. I, I gather all these phenomena together, and I say addiction is much bigger than, than drugs, though it includes drugs. And the way I present it is the following. Uh, there, there's a, say you have a meal and you take vitamins for, as a supplement. That's a healthy use 
of supplements. But say you go to the gym and you want to gain a lot of muscle mass, it will occur to you at some point you're just going to live on those protein supplements. And what I'm suggesting is that this phenomena of turning supplements into substitutes is the great affliction of our time. So, for example, Facebook, if you know what friendship is, then as a supplement you can have social media friends. But what's happened is that a whole generation of people have turned the Facebook supplement into a substitute. And so we've lost sight of what real friendship means. Hmm. Um, online shopping is another example. Even the term online shopping. Online shopping can be a supplement to going to our local businesses. But in fact, it's become a substitute for it, which is why by, by small businesses in America being gutted by Amazon. Um, there's all sorts of other examples, too. Fast food. So the, the hard work of making a meal at home is an important skill to learn. You can't, you can't be a competent citizen unless you know how, what friendship is, unless you know how to make a meal, unless you know how to form a family. Uh, but, but with fast food, which is you know, a, a supplement on any given day, if you're in a hurry, that's fine. You, you go get fast food. But people are turning that into a substitute. So everywhere we look, we're seeing this shortcut that people are taking, turning supplements into substitutes. Driverless cars is another example. It's fine if you know how to drive and you then one day decide, well, the weather's bad or you've got to get some work done and you can take a driverless car. But if you produce a society where everybody's using driverless cars, what happens when the computers go down? We've lost the competence we need to drive a car, to make a meal, to form friendships. And slowly but surely, the competence in America is being sucked away when we turn supplements into substitutes. And you can't have liberty without competent citizens who do the hard work. Yeah, necessary. You're right. We, uh, you, that's exactly what we've done. And I've never heard anybody put it that way. I think that's just brilliant. But what about the renewal factor? Because one of the things you've suggested is refortifying our middle class commercial republic. How do we set about doing that? Well, that's a huge question. And I think that Trump was the first, whatever you might think of him, he was the first one to identify to both the old Republican and the Democratic Party that we've got a crisis of the middle class. Yeah. Uh, I think tr- trade is going to have to be part of this but there's some larger issues, too. It's not just about whether we're buying and sell, selling things overseas. We as citizens have to figure out what's necessary in order to live competent, full lives. When, for example, uh, co- corporations are, are putting up all these woke products for us to buy, that doesn't suggest a healthy nation with healthy uh, gross domestic product, things like this. Uh, when we're buying opioids and things like this, it, it suggests that we're not spending money in the right ways. So I think the first task, and I, I know it sounds like we ought to be focusing on the social policy, I think the first task for every citizen in America is to ask the question, what constitutes a good and healthy life? And I come back to meals and families and friendship, and I think that's the first thing we have to do. With respect to grow, grow social policy, we have to somehow bring the manufacturing base back to America. It's plain and simple like that. Uh, but when you have a, a group of people who believe that economic efficiency is the highest good, then you're going to search for cheap labor overseas, and, and then you're going to end up gutting the middle class. One quick thing, Adam Smith, who wrote the book The Wealth of Nations, who, which is in some ways the template for this vast commercial republic we've, written, we've uh, underwritten, he said, he said he doubted that the people who had who had corporate interests, who were interested in making big corporations uh, be economically efficient around the globe, he said those people will never be interested in the national good. They're <laughs> only interested in making money. Yeah. And when you've got an elite only interested in making money, then you're going to have a problem. You have to have people who are vested in their communities who understand that the nation has to come first. 
That is right. Then, then we might make some progress. That is right. And you can see that playing out right now, can't you, when you're looking at who is benefiting from the shutdowns and who's hurting from the shutdowns? I mean, does, does Amazon care that much if the little guy has run out of business? That helps him. Yeah. And, and you know, that's the great question we're facing here. Uh, the great reset. Uh, are we going to, at the end of this, have only Amazon and a few other big box retailers and fast food restaurants uh, the only ones selling and making money, selling merchandise and making money in America. We're going to have to rethink this in a very, very deep way. My concern with the plague that we have, or, or the pandemic that we have, is it's not simply what's happening now. It's this is the first time in world history we've responded in this way. Yeah. Every five to ten years, something comes out of Africa, the Middle East, or China. It, does this mean that every five to ten years for the rest of, of uh, human history, we're going to completely shut down the world? Well, the consequences of that are we might as well just close all the small businesses right now. Yeah, I know. You're exactly right. The Great Reset is a huge subject. Great book, American Awakening, Professor Joshua Mitchell. So good to have you here, Professor Mitchell. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. You take care. All right. You take care as well. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, another watershed day for the United States with a few twists here and there. As you no doubt noticed, you had the Electoral College casting its votes for president, Joe Biden securing the win. But... Things are still a little bit up in the air, although this is a long shot because you have had Republican electors, for example, in Pennsylvania and Georgia, cast their votes for Trump. Now, I know this gets a little bit confusing. I think we have taken for granted for so long a smooth night on election night for so many years that it seems a little odd to have all of these new things thrown at us in terms of where things stand with the election and the legal challenges and what will happen with this and what will happen with that. These are kind of uncharted waters, although we remember Bush v. Gore, so we had a little bit, but that was one state. So this is obviously a very different situation. But these Democratic electors in Pennsylvania and Georgia did vote for Joe Biden yesterday. And then you had these Republican electors casting their votes for Trump. Now, Stephen Miller, who is a senior advisor for the Trump campaign, was on Fox yesterday, and he explained a little bit more in detail what this strategy is all about. Listen to Cut 6. The only date in the Constitution is January 20th. So we have more than enough time to right the wrong of this fraudulent election result and certify Donald Trump as the winner of the election. As we speak today, an alternate slate of electors in the contested states is going to vote 
and we're going to send those results up to Congress. This will ensure that all of our legal remedies remain open. That means that if we win these cases in the courts, that we can direct that the ultimate state of electors be certified. The state legislatures in Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania can do the same. And likewise, Congress has that opportunity as well to do the right thing. If you just cured three simple constitutional defects, Donald Trump's the winner of this election. Whether it's the signature matching in Georgia that was illegally changed as a result of the consent decree without the legislature's approval, or whether it's the hundreds of thousands of improperly cast ballots in Wisconsin, absentee voters who never actually submitted the request for an absentee ballot, or whether you're talking in Pennsylvania, the clear equal protection violation when Democrat ballots were cured in advance of Election Day and Republican ballots weren't. These are just three of hundreds of violations that we've documented, and those three violations alone make Donald Trump the winner of the 2020 election. Well, we will see how this all goes down, but thus far, the legal challenges have pretty much gone nowhere, and it's been very dispiriting and very disheartening for millions of Americans who believe that they were completely disenfranchised by what happened, especially when you had the Supreme Court most recently refuse to hear the Texas case against Pennsylvania and those other states. So it is a long shot. We just have to be honest about that, and it is very discouraging. There's no doubt about that either. I admire the fight. I admire people who will continue to press forward. I do have my moments of wondering if this will pay off. I think we should continue to pray for this country. I think a lot of us are very, very concerned about what this country will look like under a Biden-Harris presidency. Maybe I should say Harris-Biden. No, 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 no. He hasn't declared his disease and resigned yet. So let's just wait on that. (laughs) That will be coming later, I suppose, if you listen to the words of Joe Biden. I just shake my head on so many levels. I really do. You know, think about this for a moment. We are sitting here expecting to accept, you know, these people are accepting, really expecting us to accept the fact that we believe a guy who couldn't get 25 people to a rally somehow got 80 million votes. We are supposed to be all excited about this wonderful moment in which a man who clearly is mentally impaired is going to be the president of the United States. Why would anybody be excited about that, whether or not he were a Republican or a Democrat? This man is doddering. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to tell you what I'm looking at when I see him operating on TV. Sometimes he's a little bit more lucid than other times, but most of the time when he's doing public speaking, he shouldn't be. He's saying things and doing things that all of us who have ever seen somebody, maybe a relative of ours, grandparents or parents in a state of dementia, you would never put them into that situation. And I'm not a doctor. I am not diagnosing Joe Biden with dementia, but it is clear that he is off. That's who you're handing the presidency to, which brings us to the issue of Kamala. Is Kamala going to get the presidency on January 21st? I don't know what they have planned. All I know is it's probably likely to be Obama's third term. He's already said on video in an interview, somebody was posting this the other day when he talked about, I'd love to be behind the scenes and just kind of have somebody speaking for me and doing for me what I want. Okay, well, you got it. So yay for you. Your first two terms went so swimmingly. Now the country wants to go back to this. Why would you be excited about this? Why would you be excited as a Democrat getting Kamala Harris into the White House when she couldn't even secure a double digit support level from her own Democrats? It's all about 
getting Trump out. But more than that, it isn't really about Donald Trump, and it never has been. And President Trump himself knows that. It isn't just about Trump. It's about destroying America. Now, what will life look like for all of us if that plan is set in motion? That's what will happen if and when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are sworn in as the president and vice president of the United States. So we need to continue to pray. Now, one other thing that I think is very significant for all of us to think about is the corruption, the vast, vast, vast corruption that is present in Washington. And I am not so naive as to say it's all on the D side of the aisle. It certainly is not all on the D side of the aisle. There are plenty of Republicans whom I would throw out in a heartbeat if I had the opportunity, not not to hurt them, just to get them out of office and send them home with a nice parting gift. Just go home. We don't want to hurt you. We don't want to do anything mean to you. We just want you to leave. So there are a lot of people I would put on my own personal list of Republicans I'd like to personally escort back home where they came from. But here's the issue. I had seen a tweet that was put out by somebody who claimed to be a Chinese national who's an American now and said, I know how this is working, folks. This really is China's going to pick your leaders from now on. Now, think about this for a moment, the the power of China. We've talked to Peter Schweitzer before, the Clinton Cash author, and I've talked to him on several occasions about the corruption involved in the Biden family, certainly the story that should have hit the newspapers and the media outlets from sea to shining sea before the election. We now know they buried that story because they didn't want that to come out, and a good number of Biden voters didn't even know about the story, which mission accomplished media, way to go. Of course, you should be hanging your heads in shame because you're a disgrace to your alleged profession, but they don't do that anymore because it's not what they do. But think about this for a moment. What kind of America will we have if effectively we're in the hands of the Chinese government? Look at all of the stories that have come out in recent days pertaining to China. For example, this story that came out just a couple days ago, U.S. companies riddled with members of Chinese Communist Party. Okay, we have Companies like Boeing, Qualcomm, and Pfizer, they're just three of the U.S. companies who have employed dozens of Chinese Communist Party members in their Chinese facilities. This is according to a leaked database of registered members of the Chinese Communist Party, all of it exposing a mass infiltration of American companies with serious national security implications. This is from the New York Post. And as well, three female employees of the U.S. consulate in Shanghai have been identified in the list of 1.95 million party members that was leaked to an international group of legislators, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which includes Senators Marco Rubio and Bob Menendez. All CCP members swear an oath to fight for communism throughout my life, be ready at all times to sacrifice my all for the party and the people and never betray the party and guard party secrets and be loyal to the party. We've had China-backed hackers. You might remember this back in September. Breaking into 100 firms and agencies, the Justice Department at the time described sophisticated attacks to hijack networks and extort universities, businesses, and nonprofits. You have the Swalwell scandal. Representative Eric Swalwell still not clarifying the nation, nature of his relationship with that suspected Chinese spy. Axios had put out a report of late revealing that this spy aimed to build relationships with up-and-coming politicians, gaining significant proximity to Swalwell over the course of multiple years. This is Viofox. Why does China matter? 
You're going to hear more about it when we come back. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen and knowing that there's life growing inside. I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn currently has seven centers without ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost $15,000, more than most centers can afford. But right now, through a matching grant, your donation of $7,500 will place a machine in a needy women's center in your area. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, as Joe Biden is one step closer to becoming the next president of the United States, I think it behooves us to look a little bit more deeply at who might really be pulling the marionette strings if and when he gets into office, and that is China. Here we've been hearing about Russian collusion for years, which was a complete lie. And the real collusion in the words of Victor David Hansen, really is about Chinese collusion. And you're called a racist and a xenophobe if you talk about it, but he has a great piece on this. He says, what country could put one million religious dissidents in a gulag archipelago, destroy the semi-independence of Hong Kong, threaten any of its dissident neighbors with commercial destruction, embark on the largest imperialist and colonialist project in two centuries throughout Africa, Asia, and Europe, obliterate the culture of Tibet, militarize with man-made atolls the South China Sea, systematize internal surveillance known here for only in the pages of 1984, nonchalantly practice institutional racism and infect the planet with a novel virus and receive almost no official criticism from the United Nations and the governments of the European Union and the United States. Yes, that would be China. That would be China. 
Ask what a diverse group of movers and shakers such as Michael Bloomberg, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Representative Eric Swalwell, the elite universities of the U.S., the family of Joe Biden, LeBron James and Colin Kaepernick all have in common. Easy. A presidential primary candidate assures us that China is not an authoritarian country as he pours billions into jump-starting Chinese companies. We have a problem, America. Now, Peter Schweitzer was on with Mark Levin on Sunday. I want to play some of the cuts here for you so you can hear a little bit more about this situation. Hunter Biden, under investigation for two years, wasn't revealed before the election. He's asked, have you ever seen a scandal like this coordinated by both the campaign and the media together? Cut one. No, I haven't, Mark. Uh, and in fact, I was I was looking back through history at how, you know, sort of previous scandals had emerged or where you had situations where political candidates uh, lied uh, to the media about things and how they reacted. And I went back to a 1984. Uh, you remember there was a guy named Gary Hart that was running for president and there were allegations about, you know, his relationships with other women. And he flat out told the media, uh, it's not true. It's not true. Well, reporters knew that they were that he was lying. uh, So they followed him and they caught him. What you have is a situation today where the Bidens have repeatedly lied to the media and the media doesn't care. They don't want to catch them in the lies. They don't want to pursue the lies. You know, look at look at Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden goes on national television on ABC News and said, I have not received a single penny from the Chinese. Well, we now know, of course, that he got you know, close to $5 million from CEFC, a Chinese government-connected energy company. Uh, we know he had a big equity stake uh, in that private equity firm, that billion-and-a-half-dollar private equity firm. We know there were other transactions involving Rosemont Realty and uh, Rosemont Opportunities Fund, too. So he was flat-out lying to the national media. Um, what's been the media's response? Nothing. Joe Biden has had a long history of lying to the American people and to the media. A long history. But the media back in the day caught him on issues like lying about his ranking in in university and law school and talking about his writings and they nailed him on his plagiarism. That's why he had to drop out earlier on when he was trying to become president. Now it's the collusion of the media. The DNC, the global elite, big tech, big media. That's the collusion, folks conspiring to keep the truth from you. And he goes on. Listen to cut two. Uh, they've taken it. They've accepted it. In fact, they not only covered it up, you know, Ben Smith of the New York Times ran a piece uh, right before the election bragging about the fact that the gatekeepers, uh, which, of course, include the Times and other publications, uh, had effectively killed this story and how proud they were of it. So we're in a situation today where a grand jury was impaneled in 2018 Um, to look into Hunter Biden and his foreign dealings. It has a counterintelligence component. It has a tax fraud component. It has a public corruption component. This has been going on for two years, and nobody in the national media took it upon themselves to actually pursue that story. Uh, It's a massive disservice to the American public. We need a vibrant media that's, you know, following all of our national leaders and holding them into account. Uh, And we don't have that. We have a national media that wants to protect certain powerful figures and wants to go after other public figures. And it's a national tragedy. I agree with him on that. And what about the fact that you had 50 security experts pointing at Russia 
and others pointing at Russia to try to destroy Rudy Giuliani on this story of the laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop. It's not just the case that the media isn't telling the truth. They're working with the campaign. As I just said a moment ago, something else that Schweitzer commented on. This is cut three. Look, uh, this was Russian disinformation. Are they suggesting that the IRS and the Department of Justice are part of a Russian disinformation campaign? It's absurd. And, and there's really two things going on here, Mark, that I think are profoundly important. The first one pertains directly to the Biden case, which is the fact that you had intelligence professionals who clearly had not looked into the Biden's commercial ties with Beijing, had clearly not looked into the fact that the Biden had no commercial ties to the Chinese. They had no expertise until Joe Biden became vice president. So they didn't look at the details and they just decided to slap on the title of Russian disinformation. Uh, You know, the level of embarrassment, if they have a sense of self-awareness, you know, ought to be enormously high. I don't think all of those people were delusional. I think all those people are corrupt. That's what I believe, because I don't think people who would do something like that are in a position necessarily to be dumb. I mean, they're they're intelligence experts. They're not supposed to be dumb people. Presumably, they had something on the ball in order to secure those positions in the first place. But here's the bigger story. Cut four. Really, since 2016, 2017, it's been Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, Clearly, Russia represents some kind of a threat to the United States. Uh, No one's suggesting that. But the bigger threat that we face by any calculation, if you talk to the Pentagon, if you talk to the FBI, to the CIA, the biggest challenge we face is China. So what you have is a circumstance where people who frankly know better in the intelligence community on Capitol Hill are, are engaged in what you have to call a misdirection. They want us to focus over here at Russia when the real threat is China over here by any measure. Um, Russia's a declining power. China's an ascending power. Uh, and yet they've had no interest in talking about China at all. Interesting. No. Yes, it is very interesting. And something else very interesting that he said pertained to the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Listen to this. Cut five. I'll note that, you know, when Joe Biden left the vice presidency in in January of 2017, he set up the Biden Center in the University of Pennsylvania. And there's all kinds of questions about, you know, was there, uh, you know, Chinese money that's flowed there? And and that's an open discussion and, and something that needs to be investigated. But look at what they did. They set up the Biden Center and they said America faces three, three threats on the global stage today. Those are global warming, international terrorism, and Russia. No mention of China is a threat to the United States by the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania. That's the mindset that we're dealing with. I think it has to do with the fact that these commercial ties have been forged and they don't want to discuss China. Interesting. This is why I think it's just so critical to make sure that we're all informed. And at a time when there are fewer and fewer sources you can really trust for information. We really strive to be one of those trusted media outlets for you. I was thinking about Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Isn't that true? People groan. The wicked don't groan if they want someone wicked. But the problem with wickedness is that it can turn on you. 
All you need to do is read some of the accounts of Russian dissidents, and you can learn a lot about how the old Soviet system worked, and in some respects still works to a, a certain degree. It doesn't really matter if you're on their side. When they no longer have need of you, you're gone. That's how it worked under the old Soviet system. Why in the world would the wicked rejoice at the wicked and trust that the wicked will keep the wicked afloat? That It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's why there was a phrase coined, which is useful idiot of the Lenin era. You're a useful idiot. I can use you for a time to achieve my goals. And then when I no longer have need of you, you're gone. We'll get rid of you. Are we entering into that kind of scenario? The Soviet scenario? The Banana Republic scenario? I have no idea. All I know is I have to trust myself to the living God each and every day and be faithful to Him. And that's what you should do too. And even if we are approaching the end of the age, remember what the promise is. Jesus is going to come back. And we're one day closer toward that than we were yesterday. And that should really bring you joy. Our hope is in Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time.